Well, you can't ask for a better song on that than our text this morning to show us Christ and to reveal His glory. So I invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 17, John chapter 17, and we come to what some have called and maybe even is designated in your Bible as the high priestly prayer. It was given that title around the 15th century and uh, because of its focus on Christ praying and we would say as our high priest for us on our behalf. I think some like to call this in John chapter 17 the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. It might be that your mind quickly goes over to Matthew chapter 6. That's been titled the Lord's Prayer and uh, appropriately so. But we like to say that this is the truest Lord's prayer that we have in the Bible, John chapter 17. You know, it's interesting, just as you turn there and your Bible is open there, it is the longest recorded prayer that Jesus prayed in all of the Gospels. That would be without a shadow of doubt. I mean, certainly the Gospels tell us that Jesus prayed. His life was one of prayer. His ministry was one of prayer. But what they don't tell us often in those prayers is the content of what he prayed. We have brief statements uh, as such. For instance, at the grave of Lazarus, he prayed, Lazarus, come out. That was a prayer. And of course, Lazarus was raised. You have statements like that. You remember, just as we'll go In the next chapter, when he's in Gethsemane in the garden, and he's praying, and he'll pray this, if it be your will to let this cup pass from me. And there are statements like that. They're very brief, very rare are the words Jesus prayed until we get to John chapter 17. And the whole chapter is dedicated to his prayer. And I would have to tell you, just personally, his prayer is uh, remarkable. His prayer is stunning. His prayer is majestic. In fact, I think as I studied this week, I couldn't help but think that what a rare, rare privilege that we have to hear the second person of the Trinity pray in his humanity towards the first person of the Trinity. And so it is an amazing, amazing prayer. In fact, it could be that you ask the question, how did Jesus pray? How did he pray even to his own Father? Now remember, we're in the Passion Week It's Thursday night of the Passion Week. We believe that he's left the upper room. Likely, it doesn't tell us exactly, he's walking through Jerusalem. He's walking through, then we'll go down the Kidron Valley, and then he will go into the Garden of Gethsemane tonight, where he will pray, where he will be betrayed, where he will be arrested, where he will be crucified. All of that is bound up in this section. So he just got out of what we call the upper room discourse where he washed the disciples' feet. 
where he gave and instituted the Passover, where he told of the betrayal of Judas, and we just get a rare, rare insight into his heart of how he actually prayed. Of course, this prayer is spoken of by many. MacArthur said, it is the prayer above all prayers. The veil is drawn back. We're admitted into the holy of holies. We need to remove our shoes and listen and humble ourselves because we are on holy ground. These verses, he said, plunge the reader into the unfathomable depths of the Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son. Well said. We get an insight into what that prayer is all about. Now, I think I mentioned last week or two weeks ago that we have every reason to believe, I would think, that the disciples heard him praying this. It doesn't tell us that exactly, <clears throat> but I believe that, that as they're walking, maybe he stopped and he prayed and lifted his eyes up to his Father. And what we do know is they're recorded by the Holy Spirit through and by the Apostle John. Let me read our text for you in 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There you have it. He lifted up his eyes just that posture of prayer, and he prayed to his father. Now, we said a few weeks back, all of the arrangement in John chapter 17 is Jesus is praying to his father. Six different times, six different places right here in this chapter alone, he addressed his father in prayer. Now, I said, just as you capture the direction of this prayer, there's three key thoughts as we move through chapter 17. First, Jesus is going to pray for himself in 17, 1 through 5. He's just going to personally pray for himself, which is just a note, it's okay to pray for yourself, but you'll understand what, what I mean when, it's, when I say that he prays for himself. Then secondly, in verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his apostles, we could say that he's praying for his disciples, but it seems geared mostly towards those disciples who are and would become his apostles. Then thirdly, he's going to pray for you. He's going to pray for all future believers. In fact, let me show you the text in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you understand that even in this high priestly prayer, I say it this way, our Lord Jesus Christ was praying for you. I mean, that's what it says. 
He's prayed for you. Because it says there in 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. That's you. He was praying for his disciples in 6 through 19. But when he gets to verse 20, he's praying thirdly for all future believers, which means I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. You were in the Lord Jesus' prayer here on the very last night of his earthly life. So as we walk into the flow of this text, our Lord shouted his victory. Look in 1633, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so there it is, a shout of victory, but it's in anticipation of the cross, and he turns and he unburdens his heart to his heavenly Father. So let's look at that first category today. Jesus prays for himself. Now, as we walk into this prayer, it is so profound, so deep, so rich that I would admit that it's just impossible to plumb its death. There's no way that we could do service to the statements here inspired by the Word of God as to its depth, as to its intimacy, as to the profound nature of him unburdening his heart to God. And certainly as he unburdens his heart to God, it's going to be an example to us on how we should pray. I don't know if that's necessarily the purpose of it, but you're going to see him unburden his heart. You're going to see the focus of his prayer. You're going to see the foundation of his prayer. So to allow you to see that he prays for himself, I've just put it in a couple of main points, okay, so that you can follow the exposition. And I wish I had something better to say than this, but I got lost in the depth of it that it seems to lighten its load if I try to come up with something creative. So let me look first at the focus of his prayer with you. Then secondly, the foundation of his prayer. Okay? So number one here, the focus of his prayer. Look at verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words. So he had just got done preaching, as I mentioned. He's on his way to get Gethsemane. Gethsemane, excuse me. Now, now you'll say, what is the focus of his prayer? Well, it's not hard to see it. Look at verse 1. He says there that after he lifted up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. And here's the key lead, the key verb, if you will. Glorify your Son. That's his request. That the Son may glorify you. There you have it. He's praying. You say, what's the nature of his prayer? As he unveils his heart to the Father, he's praying. He's petitioning the Father. He's asking the Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Look at verse 4. He says there in his prayer that I've glorified you on this earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, look at verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
So he's praying, give me the glory that actually belongs to me. He is praying, if you will, for his own honor, for his own adoration. That's what the text says there. Glorify your Son. Now, obviously, the discerning reader of the Gospel of John knows something else in that prayer. Look back in verse 1. As he lifts his eyes to his Father, he says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now, here in John's Gospel, as we've seen throughout, the hour that he's talking about here is the hour of his death. In fact, it's not just his death. When it speaks of the glorification of the Son of God in the Gospel of John, that idea of him being glorified has to do with his death. It has to do with his resurrection. It has to do with his exaltation. It has to do with his ascension. So his glorification would come actually through his shame, we might say, on the cross. Now, again, glance down in verse 1. He says there that the hour has come. Now, John's spoken of the hour in many places in this gospel. In the first part of the gospel, he kept saying that the hour had not come. My hour has not arrived. My hour is not here. He said that in 2.4 and in 7 verse 6 and in verse 8 and in 7 verse 30 and 8 verse 20. But as you get to this place, he actually says here, the hour has come. You say, well, what hour is that? It is the hour of his glorification. It is the hour of his death. It would include his resurrection and ascension. Just look back just for a few verses. And look back to chapter 12 just for a moment. Turn there. In John chapter 12, he's spoken of this before. In verse 23, when Philip went and told Andrew in 12.22, and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them in 12.23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, verse 24, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So you see there, he's talking about his death in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Look in chapter 12 at verse 32. He'll say something very similar. He said in 12, verse 32, he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of his death on the cross, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so as our Lord's walking probably through Jerusalem, he said, my hour has come. My death is imminent. And so he prays here, glorify your son, which in essence, understand this, he's saying, glorify your son 
in my own death. In other words, he's praying to his father, accomplish your purpose. Father, in 1227, don't save me from this hour, but Father, be glorified in the hour of my death. That's the focus of his prayer. Glorify me as I walk in obedience to my death on the cross. Now, what's interesting, we've seen his glory throughout John's gospel. In fact, we've seen his glory in John 1.14. In fact, there, John the Apostle said, we have seen his glory. When you get to the miracles in chapter 2.11 at the miracle at Cana, it revealed his glory. All of the miracles reveal his glory. His birth revealed his glory. There was a heavenly host that claimed glory to God in the highest and so forth. So his glory has been seen. But the supreme focus of his prayer is that his death on the cross would be his own glory. It would be an instrument of torture, his hour, his glory. So in asking the Father to glorify the Son, he is really asking for the Father to be glorified. In fact, look at 17.1 again. He says, glorify me, but then he'll go on to say, glorify your son that the son, 17.1, may glorify you. In other words, he's not praying. This is not a selfish prayer. He's not praying for self-glory. He's saying that the cross magnifies the glory of God. The cross magnifies the attributes of God. That in his own death, it's revealing the character of God to a lost and dying world. It's magnifying his mercy, magnifying and glorifying his forgiveness, magnifying, if you will, his grace. And so death is the means of the son's glorification. And listen, just even the Lord's prayer, this, glorify the son, is a statement of his own willingness to obey the Father to death. So that's the focus of his prayer. It would be like when Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, your will be done on this earth. He's praying to the Father to complete your plan. Glorify me by way of my death in order that I may glorify you in return. Now, obviously, this is deep, profound communication between the first person of the Trinity and the second person, but it gives implications to us regarding our own prayer that our prayer certainly doesn't mean that we can't pray for the needs before us, but we might say that prayer begins with the chief aim for God to be glorified. You know, if you really, if I really thought that way, it would change your whole life. So here the focus of his prayer is the glory of God. God, be glorified in my marriage. Be glorified in the way I raise children. Be glorified in my business. Be glorified in this communication. Be glorified, if you will, Father, God, to you be the glory. Whether we eat, drink, you know, whatever we do, do all for the glory of God, even the most mundane things. And here when Jesus gets to the crisis, he's praying, Father, I pray, glorify me 
in my death so that I may bring you glory in my life and in my obedience. Now, you might be out there and just saying, wow, what a prayer. Jesus said to glorify me. Now, we could not ever give that prayer, and obviously we're not giving that prayer. We would not ask the Lord to do that with us. We're actually reflectors of God's glory. We reflect that glory. We let our works shine in such a way that God may be glorified. Our works do that. We bear fruit that we would give glory to God. Only Jesus can pray, glorify me. But you say, why? How? How how could he say that? And it brings me here to the foundation for his prayer. The foundation. How could he make that statement? Well, there's two foundations on why he could make that statement. And one is who he is. And the second one would be what he's done. Who he is and what he has done. Here's why he can make that prayer. You know, we have in our purpose statement that we exist to glorify God by exalting the Savior. And I think this text is going to answer why we exalt the Savior. And for our time this morning, why is he glorified in his death and why could he pray that prayer? Well, first, who he is. Who he is. And if you're new to Grace Church of the Valley, this will begin to unpack for you a Christology on the person and the work of Christ out of his own prayer to his Father. Look at verse 2. He said, he asked him in verse 1, glorify uh, your son. Here's why. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And so here he's saying, glorify me because you have given me authority over all life. In other words, because I am the one who gives life to those whom you gave me. And so here, God the Father gave God the Son authority. Look what it says there, over all flesh. In other words, he gave them authority over all people. He gave them authority over, if you will, all humanity. In other words, beloved, everything and everyone in the universe is subject to his authority. It's quite a statement there, right? Now you say, well, why was he given that authority over all life? Well, because theologically speaking, only God has life in himself. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ has life in himself. So look back to John 1 just for a second. Let me point to two features, John chapter 1, on who he is. First, his preexistence. His preexistence. And you remember this in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. In other words, how does he have life? Well, first, his preexistence. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. You know this statement. And the word was God. In other words, he's praying, glorify your son. And one of the reasons we do so is because of who he is. And here is, pre- is, is his preexistent nature. In the beginning, it's referring to the beginning of the creation. 
It's the same words in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what John does here back in John 1 is reach back before his earthly ministry. Reach back before his virgin birth. Reach back even before creation itself. If you will, John reaches back from all eternity. In other words, at the beginning of the universe, look at John 1.1, was the Word. In other words, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, already existed before the world was created. In other words, God has no beginning. God, we know, is not a created being. And whatever existed prior to creation is eternal. And in like manner, Jesus does not have his origin at creation. Jesus already was. Look at it again. In the beginning was the Word. He has existed from all eternity. He was continually, if you will, in the language, in existence before God created the world. It stresses that the Word, Jesus Christ, always existed. There was never a point when he came into being. In fact, you remember in John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I, what? I am. In other words, here is who he is. He was pre-existed, if you will. He always was. He existed before time began. And look what it says in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and it was with God, which is an incredible statement. It just literally means in the language, theon. In other words, he existed with God before the creation, and the Word was with God, and he was with God in face-to-face -face communion with the living God. So from all eternity, our pre-existent Lord was in face-to-face -face communion with God the Father. And this speaks of a deep, intimate, personal fellowship that Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, had with God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. But not only was Christ in existence from all eternity in face-to-face -face communion with God, but Scripture declares, look again at 1-1, and the Word was with God, and then the Word was God. It is one of the most direct statements in all of the Bible regarding the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word. He is God in the flesh. He existed from the very beginning, and He is very God. So if you're here new at Grace Church of the Valley, as we seem to have many new visitors every week, this is who Jesus Christ is. So when Jesus prays in the focus of his prayer, glorify your son, he's praying out of this package in John 1.1 that he was preexistent with God himself. So Jesus is one with the Father. Obviously, he's, not, he's distinct from him. He's not just an extension of the Father. There's a distinction in role, but not in essence. He is of the same essence of, as God, both are equal in the Godhead. Therefore, both are to be honored. Both are to be worshipped. So you say, how could he make that prayer? Here's how he could make that prayer. It's who he is. 
In fact, look back at John 17 for a moment. Not only was he pre-existent, but you'll understand this, I believe, at this point in his request with his father. Look at 17 verse 5. And now, Father, in other words, the hour has come. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, he looks beyond his imminent suffering. He looks beyond the glory waiting for him once again in his Father's presence, the glory he had known, the glory that he had enjoyed from eternity past. So Jesus here asked the Father to reverse at this time the self-emptying entailed in his incarnation and restore to him the pre-incarnate glory that he shared with the Father before the world began. Glorify me, Father, with the glory that I had with you before the incarnation. And so here's the foundation of his prayer. First, it's who he is. Jesus is God. He is the pre-existent Lord. But secondly, he is the self-existent one as well. The self-existent one. It says in John 1.4 that in him was life. This is very important. That would have been John 1.4. But he says in verse 2 of John 17, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. When we talk about the self-existent nature of Jesus, theologians use a word for this. They call this the aseity of God. A-S, it would be E-I-T-Y. In other words, not only was he pre-existent, but bound up in the person of Jesus Christ, nothing gave him life. Because he was pre-existent, Because he's self-existent, he always had life, just as God the Father always had life. In other words, he is life himself. In fact, look back to John 5. Let me just show you that real quick. We touched on that earlier in our exposition. In John chapter 5, in verse 26, here's the aseity of God. For as the Father... 526, has life in himself, so he has granted the Son of God to also have life in himself. In other words, just as God is the source of everything and everyone who lives, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, is the source of everything and everyone who lives. Only God, beloved, is self-existent. And now Christ is said to have life in himself, so he therefore is God. He too is self-existent. He is the source of life. He is the source of all physical life. He is the source in John as well of all spiritual life. And this is why according to Ephesians chapter 2, before we came to Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and what? Sins. But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love for us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us, what does it say? Do you remember? 
alive together with him. By grace you have been saved. Beloved, this is why Jesus went into that exhortation in John chapter 3 that you must be born again. In other words, God the Father and God the Son are the source of everything and everyone who's ever existed in this world. But he's also the source of spiritual life and he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so here what Jesus says in verse 2 is he's praying, Father, glorify me. Here's the reason. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, and then look what it says, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now you can't miss that statement there, that just as he's the source of life, he's the source of spiritual life, and it is, as it says here in verse 2, he gives eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is the plan of redemption in the mind and the heart and the eternity of God. God the Father planned out redemption before the world began. God the Father chose you in Him before what? The foundation of the world. In other words, the Father gave to the Son a love gift. He gave to the Son, if you will, a gift and it's a gift of eternal life there in verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It speaks of this in other places in John 17. The Father gave, the Father gave. Obviously, it's the doctrine of election. It's the doctrine of election that the Father gave to the Son a love gift. And if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, then it even is beyond sometimes our finite mind that God the Father gave you to God the Son so that God the Son would give eternal life. In other words, he's praying, Father, glorify me because of who I am. You gave me the authority over all life. You gave me the authority to give eternal life. This is who Jesus Christ is. Now, obviously, this does not rule out God's love for the entire world, John 3, 16, nor does it alleviate the fact that those who reject the gospel are under his wrath, John 3, 36. There is what we called attention in Scripture. But listen, if here's my, my heart to you on Labor Day. If you're in Christ, you were promised to the Son by the Father before the world began. He gave to the Son a love gift. And because the Son has life in Himself, verse 2 there, He can give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And so He elaborates on eternal life. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, here, our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is and has authority over all life, he gives eternal life. And he says here in verse 3, that eternal life is not a time, we often would think of it this way, subsequent to death. Rather, eternal life 
is in the here and now, according to this statement, as well as John 5, 24. To know God is to know Jesus Christ. And to know God and to know Jesus Christ here is defined as such that it's eternal life. Now, obviously, there's not many who can give this. There's none who can give this, right? This is exclusive to God the Father, exclusive that he gave authority to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has authority. And then look how he's defined in verse 3, that you may know that they may know you. And then he defines them as the only true God. There are not different gods. There are not different paths. The only true God is the one that's revealed to us in Scripture. Paul telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.17, he says that you are the only God. And here he's the only true God. In the book of Revelation, it says in 6.10 that he is the sovereign Lord, that he is holy and he's true. And so here in 17.3, the only true God is revealed, look at the text in verse 3, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So to know God is to know Jesus Christ. Beloved, you know this, that you can't know God apart from his son, okay? And in other words, he's the only way you can come into a living relationship with him. And obviously in verse 3, when he uses that word, that you may know the only true God, that word know there, gnosko, is not just talking about facts. It's talking about knowing someone deeply, knowing someone intimately. And here, it's a relationship of trust. It's a relationship of faith. It's a relationship of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with him. He's been sent by God. He is the God-sent Messiah. He is the anointed one. And just as there is only one true God, there is only one true way to the Father, and it's through Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting here is to ask this question of you. When did he give the Son this authority? In that statement there, since you have given him authority, verse 2, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. When did he give him that authority? Well, some would say, and rightfully so, that God the Father from all eternity gave God the Son authority over all mankind. It's true. Is it not? In other words, there was a promise given. There was a promise given by the Father to the Son to give you eternal life. And that was promised, if you will, from all eternity. But I think there's something more here. Others might say that the authority belongs to Jesus because he's part of the Godhead. And I understand that. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is Jesus Christ. He is Christ Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He is, he is all those things. And he has this authority because he's part of the Godhead. And certainly that would be true. But I think there's something even more direct here. The authority here 
was given by the Father in eternity past to the Son, but given on the basis of not only who He is, but secondly, what He's done. In other words, what He's done clarifies why He was given that authority. Look at verse 4. Jesus comes back and said, I glorified you on earth. I love that. His whole life, his whole mission, his whole heart was to give God glory. Let me say that that should be your effort, businessmen. That should be your effort, businesswomen. That should be your effort, singles. That should be what you should do as a young man, as a junior higher, and a high schooler. You ought to reflect the glory and the image of God that our lives, namely, ought to be caught up in reflecting Him back to people. Now, obviously, our Lord Jesus Christ did that perfect. But you understand in verse 4, in His humanity, He said, I glorified you on earth. In fact, the only reason He was praying in verse 1, when He said, glorify your Son. In other words, glorify your Son in His death, that I may glorify you. But look at verse 4. He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. In other words, what a statement. I glorified you in my obedience. I glorified you in my work. Certainly, he glorified him in keeping the law. 33 years, our precious Lord Jesus Christ never sinned. But I really think what he's getting at in this context here is that, Father, the hour has come. And he's speaking about moving forward to the cross, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. In other words, God the Son left glory for you. God the Son came, became a man. He took on flesh. We call that the incarnation. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In a few hours, it's, it's interesting. Do you see that word there in verse 4? Having accomplished is the same root word in just a few hours when he will pray and say, it is finished. And so his prayer here is anticipating his death. And he did all of that for you. Do you remember that statement? I think it might come up here on the screen in Philippians. Just let it sink in again to you. Who though, and just stop there, he dwelt in, in the fullness of God's glory. The fullness of the Father. He's saying, restore me back to the glory that I once shared with you. Get, give, put me back in that place where I was in a perfect, intimate relationship with you, where there was no sin, there was no stain, there was no rebellion in that pre-existent glory. But you and I know the message of the gospel. The gospel is, is that God the Father, from before the foundation of the world, promised to the Son to redeem a group of people. How could he do that? Well, the Word, who was God in 1-1, became flesh. So look at this. 
who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Now let me just be clear. When he emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself and took on the limitations of humanity. So he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I mean, it is the wonder of all wonders, beloved, that the one who is pre-existent, that the one who is self-existent, it says there that he was born in the likeness of men, that he went into the womb of a woman, a teenager, and, you know, empowered by the Holy Spirit, conceived. But he was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He's fully man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, period. Now, I want you to note this. Therefore, here's when this authority came into action. It was given to him and promised to him from all eternity. Therefore, by virtue of his death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a statement. Listen, here's the foundation of his prayer. The focus is glorify the Son, but the foundation of it is built off who he is and was and is today, but here's secondly, what he's done. Eternally, God the Son became a man. Eternally, God the Son in John 1.14 dwelt among us. It says in the Bible that he took on flesh, if you will, and blood. At the incarnation, he emptied himself. He became the suffering servant. He would be executed at the hands of evil men. But he was raised. He was raised, beloved, was he not? And so it's interesting that when you get to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said in the Great Commission, after his resurrection, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, he was promised that authority, but by virtue of what he's done, it was in full effect. In fact, in Ephesians 1, where it says, he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come, he has put all things in subjection under his feet. And it says in Ephesians 1, he is head over all things. So, beloved, we have a, a wonderful, wonderful God, do we not? A God who was full, the Lord Jesus Christ, of grace and truth. He is the full expression of God's grace and truth. And as John proceeds, at least in his gospel, it was hidden from the crowds. But when he came into his own, his own received him not. He revealed that glory, but he also died in our place. Just think of statements like this in Hebrews 1.3, that he is 
the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. The Bible profoundly says that He upholds in Hebrews 1 the universe by the word of His power. But then it says in Hebrews that after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There is something here in John 17 about the Son's obedience to the Father even to the point of death. In fact, in Hebrews, it says we see Him in chapter 2, verse 9, a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned, it says, with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor. Did He have glory and honor? Absolutely. But in his humanity, his obedience to the point of death, death on a cross, was that he was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Listen, beloved, what a statement. What a great Savior we have. What, what, what a wonderful Savior that he emptied himself to go to the cross for you. To die in your place. He's, it says in the book of Hebrews in 2.14 that the children share in the flesh and blood. And then it says that he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. In other words, he took on flesh to die your death. So here's the focus of his prayer, and here's the foundation of his prayer built off who he is and built off what he has done. In fact, it says in Hebrews 2.17 that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, took on humanity, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So listen, we have such a wonderful, wonderful Savior. Let, let me just say to you as we, as, as we put this to a close, listen. He prays, the focus of his, of his prayer is glorify me in my death because I want to glorify you. I, I came to die. I, I don't want you to take me from this hour I want you to glorify me in the hour of my death. And then he gave the foundation of this prayer, and he's the one who gives eternal life. Let, let me just say it this way. I don't know if you've ever seen it this way. The reason that Jesus Christ can give you eternal life, as stated here, is the fact that he has life in himself. He is self-existent. In other words, he has the authority to extend that to you and to give you everlasting eternal life based on who he is. And yet, we worship him because of what he's done. This is how he prayed. And I just wondered as I considered my own heart this week, is this how I pray? Is this how you pray if you have a baby in your womb? Young mamas out there, 
that I pray that this child would give you glory? Do you pray that way as a father, as a husband, that I want to glorify God in all my life, in all my words, in all my investments, in all my actions? I just want to reflect back to your character, God. And then it would help us, I suppose, if we walked out in humility to always know that the Lord Jesus Christ did that for us. Listen, it is the wonder of all wonders that we have such a glorious Savior. Can I just read you one quote? And I, I found this, and I know I've given it to you before. It's by Wayne Grudem. And it just stuns me even as we consider this when he said, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The Father's given you work to do. And the Son fulfilled what he did. But Grudem said of the incarnation itself when he became man, it is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. Maybe we could argue that. I don't know. That's what he said. He said, the incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection. More amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever. So that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. End of quotes. Listen, as you put your head to your pillow tonight and as you carry about tomorrow on Labor Day, have a great day. But never forget who he is and what he did to accomplish your salvation and give you eternal life.